Today on Art Breaker, I am thrilled to have Joe Dunning, the founder of Dunning & Partners, joining me. Dunning & Partners specializes in supporting the arts through creative collaboration with business. I just want to start out, Joe, thanking you for joining me and to hear a bit more about what led you to found Dunning & Partners just a little less than a year ago. As they say in the tech world, what problem were you trying to solve? Hi, Amelia. Thank you for having me. Um, it's great to be here. Um, as you know, my, my background was in the auction business where I spent 14 years. And it may seem a little bit of a, a leap, I guess, to, to go from be, working in the auction business to, to doing what I'm doing at the moment with Dunning & Partners, which you um, expressed perfectly there. Really, the, the problem that I'm trying to solve is that over the course of my time in the auction business, I was, I was lucky enough to work with a number of museums in, in lots of different ways. And it struck me that the way in which, in particular, museums were engaging with the corporate world was a little bit tired, a little bit cookie cutter, quite repetitive. And the return on investment for the corporate supporter just wasn't really there, whether it's supporting an exhibition or in any other way, that support tended to just disappear. So if you think about a museum exhibition, we're sort of almost conditioned to expect that when we go to a museum exhibition, there will be a corporate supporter, their logo will be on the wall. If we buy that catalogue, we might open it and see a forward from the corporate supporter. Um, and so if you're, if you're a corporate supporter shopping for opportunities within the museum world, whether it's for client acquisition, whether it's for client cultivation, whether it's for brand awareness, you're, you become used to seeing the same options. And what that means is that everybody's getting the same treatment or, or very similar treatment from a, from a corporate supporting perspective. And that makes you, the corporate supporter, your individual support, kind of invisible because it looks exactly the same as everybody else's. It doesn't stand out. We, we sort of breeze past that exhibition wall. We don't necessarily look and see who's, who supports it. Before lockdowns and the, the whole situation that we're in, when we were in a position to go and see exhibitions, I used to say to people, tell me the last exhibition that you went to see and then tell me who sponsored it. Even when people were regularly visiting exhibitions, they couldn't recall that information. And I actually had a conversation with somebody from a corporate supporter who couldn't remember some of the exhibitions that they had supported in the past. So it just goes to show that this, this support kind of, it all blends into one and it becomes quite indistinguishable. The other issue with supporting an exhibition is that it's, it's finite in the sense that the exhibition ends, the walls are taken down, they're painted over, the paintings are taken off the wall, hopefully not in that order. But that's it. You know, everything gets packed up and it's, it's over. And then you take your budget somewhere else and you kind of end up doing the same thing again. And it was really in recognition of that problem that I built the idea of Dunning & Partners. And, and we launched in June of last year at a time when, for obvious reasons, museums were struggling. Um, it, it was a time when, well, it still is a time where people are looking for alternative sources of revenue and they're looking at ways in which they can attract funding. The, the, the challenge, of course, is that at the same time, businesses are, are struggling and they are taking a very close look at their budgets and they're losing pretty much everything that's not mission critical. And the, the, 
the situation with corporate funding of the arts was such that because it was a little bit stagnant, because it was a little bit samey, it was really easy to lose. You know, as a line item on a budget, you can say, is this mission critical? No. So, so what Dunning & Partners is, is, is trying to do in working with businesses, as you say, to fund the arts in, in, in unique and creative ways, is to help those businesses stand out and to provide value to those businesses by conceiving and delivering tailor-made projects projects that support the arts in important ways, in ways that the arts need supporting. It's not about creating hoops for people to jump through, but because they're unique, they help businesses stand out, they help businesses demonstrate their values, um, they help them deliver on their mission and reach new audiences. Which I think is perfectly timed. And as someone who's who's been in this space, who's, who's being approached by museums, right? You get sent kind of this standard deck and they say, do you want to support this exhibition? And what I have to do and what I think any person making that decision to business has to say to themselves is, okay, well, I think this may be interesting. I certainly would love to support this institution, but I have to justify you know, to the powers that be, why we should spend the money this way, as opposed to spending it any other way. And, you know, what is my ROI here? What will be my return on invested capital? Uh, Uh If we do sponsor this exhibition, which again, I want to support the institution, but I still have to answer to someone else who's going to be looking at the budget and say, we have these budgets in order to promote our organization, you know, and we need ways we can demonstrably show that this made a meaningful impact to our business, right? So in my role at Bonhams, you know, is different than someone's role at, you know, Sony Pictures or at Adobe or Disney. I'm just trying to name a a breadth and depth of of businesses and maybe they want brand exposure, right? I have to be able to say that I was able to meet or engage better with XYZ collector as a result of this. And I was able to garner additional goodwill and business relationships and ultimately consignments or mm-hmm. uh, collectors choosing to buy works from us. Maybe they weren't exposed to otherwise through doing this. That's my ROI, right? So I have to be able to say that if I want funding in order to to support a museum exhibition, but right, those in in corporate roles across a variety of types of businesses, I'm sure have to answer to someone asking those same types of questions, but they might have different indicators of ROI. So can you give me an example? I I certainly don't want to ask you anything confidential of a way that you're already able to engage with creative sources of real brand alignment between museums and corporations. Yeah, absolutely. One of the one of the areas that we're really focusing on is is going deep into that kind of knowledge that you just described. The 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 knowledge around understanding what a business what what that business's mission is, what its business model is, what are its risks to income, who are its competitors, what is its marketing strategy, what is its brand platform, how is it trying to differentiate itself from its competitors from others in the field? How is it building its brand equity? And what are the ways in which the art world can help them do that? And even that's a little bit of a a difficult pill to swallow for some people in the art world, um, certainly in the nonprofit sector, because it feels or it can feel a little bit like I mentioned, I use the phrase jumping through hoops. It can feel a little bit like well, we're not here to, to help this company get return on investment. We're not, we're not there to help them grow. 
the fact is, if you don't think like that, the money will not come back. If you've lost corporate supporters over the last 12 months, you're not going to get them back once they start to grow again, once their balance sheets start to look a little bit more healthy. They're not going to come back automatically just simply by dint of, of, of having been a supporter of yours in the past. So it's about encouraging people to, to think about ways in which they can, they can meaningfully rekindle those relationships. And I think one of the fruitful avenues for that is to think about it from the perspective of customers or clients, consumers, and to think of the museum's audience in, in a similar way. We talk about a museum's community, a museum's audience, but we don't necessarily think about them as, as, as customers or consumers or, or, or even sort of segment them in the way that, that, that companies do. And actually, if you do that, you only have to do it necessarily from a thought exercise. You don't actually have to take it beyond that. But if you think about it from that perspective, you actually see that there are a lot of commonalities between people who go to museums, people who engage with the visual arts and customers or, or target customers for a lot of these brands. So without realizing it, these museums have an asset that they're not necessarily leveraging in, in the way that they could. An example would be, there is evidence out there that shows that the visual arts attracts a, a comparatively young audience and a comparatively diverse audience. Now that's an audience who's, according to economists, whose relative spending power will, will grow over the next 10 years, as there is transfer of, of, of wealth from one generation to the next. And it's also the audience that other studies show will spend more with the brands that reflect their values and support the causes they care about. So if you're a business thinking about your path to, to recovery and you share those values in a meaningful and genuine way, you support those causes that these customers care about, then you need to be talking about that. You, know, you need to be engaging the, that audience in an in a authentic, emotional way in order to sort of convert them into customers. Once you've got that understanding of the business, you understand, you take these two things, you understand that on the one hand, you've got this common audience. On the other hand, you, you, you deepen your understanding of what the the business is all about, what they're trying to do, and you bring those together and come up with some creative standout ideas that, that, will, that will serve both purposes and create value on both sides of the equation. I'm personally curious, as an American, your business is UK-based. In the US, you know, we are very aware that there is very limited public or government support for the arts and that institutions primarily rely on individual private donations as well as corporate donations. And then of course, all the revenue they can earn from exhibition sales, food and beverage sales, events, uh, corporate rentals or weddings, and then you know the gift shop, right? Like those are the ways they can all earn money. If I left anything out, uh, please correct me. And, you know, their finances, for the most part, are very public. The Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco, when I get their, you know, magazine, there's always a page in there that goes through the budget and how they're doing according to their revenues. And, you know, I think, obviously, museums have been very transparent in the past year, how much revenue they've lost simply because they cannot, you know, be open. And it's at least a third, I think, if not more, for most institutions. But to come back around to my question, you know, funding is such a prominent part of institutional success, I think, in the United States. And is that becoming more and more common in the UK? The situation in, in the UK has been over the last 10 years or so 
becoming more and more like the situation in the US. Public funding has been declining pretty steadily over the last 10 years. At the same time, if you are a museum that receives funding directly from the, the DCMS, that's the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, so the direct government funding, there's other forms of funding by the Arts Council and local councils as well. But if you receive from that big pot of money from the government, that money is contingent on you increasing your earned income. So you're not going to get pocket money from mum and dad unless you also get a paper round. It's, it's an incentive to become more self-sufficient, which is closer, I think, to the situation that we've seen for many, many years, the norm in the United States. The effect of that in, in the situation in which we find ourselves today is that the museums that have fared best here in the UK, according to the, the metrics that they've been told to use, are now worse off because Tate is one example of a museum that generates a lot of its own income. I think it's something around 70%. It could be more. And of course, like you say, that disappears. So because public funding has been, has been dropping and because these institutions have been incentivized to generate more and more of their own income, it's become a little bit more like the situation in the States. The difference is in the lag between the change in that situation and an adaptation to that situation in terms of how you seek other sources of revenue. So when I was at Sotheby's, I was running a project called the Sotheby's Prize, which was an annual award that we gave out to museums for upcoming exhibitions that looked at overlooked and underrepresented areas of art history. And we had a jury and that jury consisted of museum directors and curators, both in the States, in continental Europe and in the UK. And it was really interesting to sit around and talk to them about the differences. And I actually wrote an article for Sotheby's a couple of years ago, speaking to them on, on the record about, about the difference. And uh, Emily Gordenka, who is one of our, our jurors, she is now the director of the Van Gogh Museum uh, in, in the Netherlands. And she was talking about the fact that in Europe, they're just so much further behind in terms of the entrepreneurial way in which they think about funding, because they've just been used to money from the government arriving every month. So I think continental Europe, the situation is, again, slightly different. But certainly here in the UK, it's become closer and closer to the, the American model without necessarily the, the innovative entrepreneurial thinking to, to bridge the gap. And so, again, that's part of, of, of what Dunning & Partners is here to do, is to act as a kind of a middleman to say, OK, this is what you're trying to do. Let us help you translate that need and that opportunity into language that the corporate world understands so that that opens up um, another avenue of funding. And given your time at, at Sotheby's and, you know, Christie's before that, building these relationships within the art world, you so clearly understand the problem and helping the museum world address it. You know, on the corporate side, I'm curious, who do you use as your sounding board or your personal advisors when, when it comes to thinking on the corporate front? Typically, at the moment at least, companies with a history in supporting the arts. And what I'm, what I'm finding in a lot of the conversations that I'm having with such companies is that they've tended to work themselves into a corner in the sense that if, if say, you, you are a company that sponsors art fairs, what tends to happen is other art fairs come to you and say, would you be interested in sponsoring our art fair? 
And you don't necessarily want to sponsor another art fair in a different city because you've kind of got that area of things covered. You're sort of talking to that audience, as we, as, as we know, the art fair audience tends to travel around the world. And so, you know, you're talking to the same people if, if you go over there and, and, and sponsor a, a different art fair. And so the value that, that they're finding in working with Dunning & Partners is that we're aware of more than they are, to put it bluntly, because of all the conversations, as you mentioned, that we're having with these, with these arts organisations across the world. And, and so we're able to present to them a, a menu of options almost. And again, the conversations tend to, tend to be um, very constructive and iterative as well in the sense that we will explore certain areas that they, you know, certain aspects of their mission that they want to invest in. And that might lead us to say, oh, well, geographically speaking, you could consider this project in, in this city. Um, the other aspect of it in terms of you know, my, my go-to companies is that I'm very aware of the, the, the necessary and important scrutiny that has increased over the last few years around where the money comes from in the art world. I think that we all used to operate on, on the basis that, you know what, it doesn't matter where the money comes from as long as you're doing good with it. And that's, that's why we have issues in the art world with the Sacklers for example. Um, there's a lot of controversy around BP and its continued sponsorship of, of various um, institutions and, and, and exhibitions here in the UK. And I wrote an article for, for the art newspaper at the, at the launch of Dunning & Partners talking about this issue and arguing, and I, I, I still believe this, that that scrutiny isn't going to go away in spite of the increased urgency and need for money. So it, it's, it's not going to be acceptable for museums to take money from oil companies, from any, any company in any industry that fails to put people before profit. The people are spending their money, they're voting with their wallets, and they're choosing to, to buy more sustainably. And they're choosing to, so maybe pay a little bit more to go with a company that higher costs because they're choosing to invest ethically in their supply chain. Um, and so for, for Dunning & Partners, a, a really important part of what we do is to is to make sure that the companies that we talk to are aligned in that way. I think that's a very critical and timely point about where the money comes from. And even in my own time working on investing in creative technology startups, not all in the arts, um, specifically a lot in music or a lot in performance or video, or again, using technology to further um, creative pursuits, really in speaking to investors, a lot of the mindset is really changing, especially at the institutional level around making money in the bad things like oil, tobacco, but then giving the money to the good things, right? And I okay. think for a lot of history, that was considered okay in philanthropy or even if you think about more recent iterations, you know, what's happened with Wallace Kanders on the Whitney board or uh, with Leon Black at MoMA and it with personal uh, donations, not just corporate donations. Certainly this com is completely coming under scrutiny. And I do think that there's a reckoning, you know, in investing generally around looking at sustainable investing and looking at the returns on investments where you're putting solely profit first at the detriment of future people. Um, but I think from a sustainability and environmental perspective, first and foremost, I think that's a huge issue in the art world. And I think it is a very challenging space where people are saying, well, we need funding 
and they're willing to give us the funding and we don't have the funding coming from other sources. And I think what, what you're doing, which is very innovative, is saying you need to rethink the narrative around how you approach funding and what is of value to those who might be, be giving that funding. And I think it really, you know, is always talked about from a sponsorship or a partnership level, but it often doesn't really feel like that. But I think when, it, when you have those relationships that really are meaningful is when both parties get the most out of it. I wholeheartedly agree. Well, and I think it just feels like a right fit. I think it is important to really change those mindsets of those asking for money. They're sort of like, well, you should give us the money, right? Because you're a corporate and you have to sponsor. And, and it's like challenging when you have those conversations. And I've, I've you know, even been approached that way. And I'm like, well, actually, if you change the benefits here, this would be more valuable to me. And I'd be more interested in that. But I usually find that I'm the one leading that conversation. And isn't that interesting? It's not the first time I've heard that. So you launched Dunning and Partners in June of last year. Yep. And unfortunately, there was this global pandemic going on, which you had not planned for. So I'd love to learn a little bit about how the pandemic has impacted your business. How do you see that kind of pushing the art world forward and furthering some of the change that's already occurring? Well, from, a, from the point of view of Dunning and Partners itself, the... the the pandemic has, has in, in, a, in a strange way, presented certain opportunities that we hadn't necessarily envisaged. And one of those actually has something to do with, with aviation, in a way. It used to be, and our professional lives used to be built around this, it, it used to be that the meeting was face-to-face. -face. You know, the expectation was that if you were serious, if you wanted to pitch, if you wanted someone's attention, you'd go to them. Um, we had not envisaged crossing the Atlantic and, and, and working in the States. What the pandemic has allowed us to do is meet with people all over the world immediately through screens. And, and because that expectation shifted by necessity, uh, it, it, it opened up the world to us and it allowed us to, to work much more broadly from a geographical standpoint than, than I perhaps envisaged. And so I think that the speed with which we all adapted to that obviously took a huge amount of logistical work took a, a, big, a big investment in hardware. You look at the stock market and you see the, the, the uptick in technology hardware industry group. People, you see why that happened. It's because a lot of people were buying computers and, and various other equipment that they needed to power the, the home offices of their employees. But the fact that it happened so quickly suggested to me that that was a change that was, that was ready to happen. And it was one that was overdue because the answer was there in front of us. It was just, just invest a bit more in, in technology and get over certain expectations that you had, find ways of adapting. I remember Frances Morris, who's the, the director of Tate Modern, saying how nice she was finding it in spite of everything that was going on to be having conversations with people and not have jet lag and just be able to talk creatively with people without the eight or 12 hour flight in between. And so I think we were all keen to sort of pat ourselves on the back, but in retrospect, it, it was, it was overdue and we should have been, we should have been thinking about that from all sorts of points of view, environmental, our own sanity, our own, um, you know, health. So what's more interesting to me are the sort of the latter changes in technology and, and, and ways in which companies have experimented and, and sort of failed and embraced failure and learned from it and taken it away. A lot of museums have been working with companies, technology companies, for example, to, to, to try and bring the museum to people's homes. And, you know, 
I, th I think about Verizon and the partnership they did with the Met, for example, which as one reviewer pointed out was kind of shonky and a bit flawed, but still cool. And, and the fact is that both Verizon and the Met will have learned a lot from that. And I think that as companies continue to innovate and you know, create new products, the, the museum world needs to think about ways in which they can, they can embrace that commercially driven expertise and gain access to it in exchange for some kind of value that they can return to the likes of Verizon or Microsoft or, or, or Google Arts and Culture or whomever it might be, rather than the sort of the, the, the adaptation around how we work, that's what's more interesting to me and how that's going to play out. I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to, to seeing that as well. I don't want to keep you up too late, so I just want to ask one more question. I'm wondering where do you see Dunning and Partners in 20 years? I really struggle to think that far ahead. Um, Partly, I'll tell you why, partly because I'll be, I'll be, by that point, this is a real shock to me as I'm, as I'm thinking this, I'll be close to retirement age by then. <laughs> That's a struggle to sort of get my head around. But the, the, main, the main reason that I find it hard to answer that question is because my career to date has been such that events have conspired against any long-term plans that I've had in a good way. I'm not a fatalist. I don't believe in destiny, but I, I, I do believe that that things happen to us that are outside of our control and beyond prediction and knowledge. Um, and, and there are a couple of sort of flashpoints in my own career that demonstrate that. And so I try to avoid making predictions. What I prefer to do is to stay alert and to keep my eyes open and to remain inquisitive and to continue to learn and to discuss and to collaborate and to try and be as creative as possible and then kind of see where things go. That said, my ambition for, for Dunning & Partners is that in a few years' time, at least, we are running projects all over the globe. You've invited me to indulge myself here, so I'm, I'm going I'm to go big. Let's say all over the globe. Those projects are benefiting the arts and providing value to companies, whether it's a, an annual prize or an internship program for underrepresented talent or whether it's uh, a bursary scheme for artists that are using their platform to, to help people, or whether it's uh, a pool of money for museums to acquire works by artists that are underrepresented in their collection to make those things possible. Okay, I lied. I said that was the last question and it's not. <laughs> are, you, are, you, are you down for one more? So there's, this is, kind of more of a phenomenon in the US, but there's all of the rise of the experiences versus like an institutional museum, like a Meow Wolf or a Museum of Ice Cream or, and I think in some ways they pose a very interesting question because they obviously garner a lot of visitors and some of them are immersive art experiences, or even if you look at, you know, rain room at MoMA, like there's a lot of different types of experiential art that people are interested in. Or even if you think about, you know, the touring Van Gogh experience, which is just like these projected images of his work. So I think people really want to experience art in new ways. Sometimes they just want to take selfies, but I want to take that aside and say, you know, what, what do you think museums can learn from that? You know, part of me just wants the formal art world to, to get with that program a bit more only so people think of a museum as a place to have an experience, right? That doesn't mean they have to project images of the paintings on the walls, 
I don't necessarily think so. So I'm kind of stuck in this um, push and pull of how I feel about experience. But regardless, they sell tickets and they public is interested in attending them. So I'm I'm just curious as you're wearing this this hat of thinking about change and innovation in institutions, you know, do you, are you encountering any conversations around that or are you really focusing more on the traditional corporate museum relationships? I think that there can be a tendency on the, on the museum side to prescribe the way in which someone should respond to an artwork. And I think that that, that tendency is, is, has its roots in certainly the, the previous century and possibly the century before that. And I think that that can be where this, this reluctance comes from, because you mentioned that, that, that people um, may engage with, with one of these experiential installations simply by, by taking selfies and posting them uh, on social media. And I think there are some people that in, in the museum world that, that, that are against that, that somehow see that as, 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 as cheapening the art or uh, not engaging with it on, on, on the right level. Um, I'm, I'm more inclined to sort of subscribe to that Bartesian idea of the death of the author and you know, the artwork ceases to, you know, the, 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 the creator of the artwork ceases to have any control on it over it once it's out there in the world. And, and you know, my response to it defines the work, your response to it defines the work. Those two definitions might be different. And isn't it interesting for us to have a conversation where we try and reconcile those two things. So that's, that's, that's more where I tend to, to think. And, I, and, and in that sense, I think that leads me to be a little bit more uh, inclined towards experiential art. On some days, I think of it, I imagine what people, what some people said about impressionist painting or about photography. You know, some people who had this prescriptive idea about what art is or should be and said, that's not it. This photograph is not art. And of course, we, we, we now, well, most of us at least recognize that it is. And so I, I think that museums should look at this and, and shouldn't just dismiss it out of hand. At the same time, museums are essentially sort of quality control organizations, right? One of their functions is, is, is quality control. And let's assume that not all experiential installations are created equal. Um, so just because you go and see one that, that was bad doesn't mean that they're all bad. Just like you go and see a painting that you think is bad doesn't mean all painting is bad. Um, and I think that at the moment we're in a, a period where museums probably don't have the expertise and the experts themselves to, to, to judge those things. I think that it's really important that, that museums don't dismiss opportunities like that out of hand, but it's, it's, it's also important that they build the tools, they acquire the tools to, to make those judgments. I'm always a little bit dubious about big art and, and the impression that big art leaves on me because I can't automatically disentangle the size and the, the impact that the size of the work alone, the scale of it had on me versus the other aspects of the work. If I go and see a massive sculpture, I, I sometimes ask myself, what would I think of it if it was life-size or smaller than me. And, you know, the comparison I make is I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever gone to the cinema and come out of it and gone, I really enjoyed that. It was on a big screen. I mean, sometimes if you go, you know, you, you go and see Batman on IMAX, it, it's a better experience on IMAX than on a, you know, on, on, on your laptop. So scale does come into it, but I, I, you know, that's never really the driving force behind the consideration of whether or not that was a good movie. And so for me, I still struggle to assess for my own purposes, big art. 
and I think that it's it's a similar sort of thing because you're using different you know different tools to 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 judge and to assess and to uh, contextualize and obviously context is, is is really important. So I think it's I think I'm a little bit like you to be honest, Amelia. I'm 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 sort of torn. On the one hand, I think it's it's great, but I recognize that I personally don't have all of the the experience and the knowledge and the tools to really make a, a meaningful assessment. Well, I agree. And it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you today, Joe. And thank you for joining me. And thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Artbreaker. Thank you, Amelia, for having me.